technology can be the greatest equalizer that we have ever known. But today it's not because we have this huge gap in terms of connectivity and we have a huge gap in terms of diversity in our sector. Hello and welcome back to the next page, the podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. I'm Katrine Lungse and I work here at the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. On today's episode, our director, Francesco Pisano, spoke to Doreen Bogdan-Martin, who is director of the ITU Telecommunications Development Bureau. Doreen was the first woman in ITU's history to hold a top elected management position. And in this conversation, she told Francesco more about the challenges that women face when they enter the tech industry. She also enlightened us on how technology should be used to achieve the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. And she talked candidly about the increasingly discussed issue of tech ethics. So if you want to know more about Doreen's experience as a female leader in the male-dominated tech sector or how the tech industry perpetrates gender bias, this is an episode for you. There you go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Next Page podcast here at Library and Archives, UN Geneva. I'm Francesco Pisano, and today I have the great honor and great pleasure to welcome Doreen Bogdan-Martin, who is director of the ITU Telecommunication Development Bureau here in Geneva with the International Telecommunication Union. Welcome to the podcast, Doreen. Thank you. Excited to be here. It's a great time to be here because we haven't spoken about tech and women in tech on this podcast yet. So the ground is free. We're opening with this, with this new theme for us. And it's an important one. So, but before we go there, you have focused your professional career on technology and international organizations um, for basically all your professional life, if I understand correctly. And three years ago, you, be- you have become the first woman elected director of the ITU Telecommunication Development Bureau. We'll talk about that as well and how momentous that election is for all women in tech. But before we go into today's topics, tell us a little bit about yourself so our audience can get to know you better. Terrific. Well, very timely topic. Excited to be here to talk about women and and tech. So I am, as you said, director of the Telecommunications Development Bureau. Uh, I started my career 30 plus years ago. Uh, Started as an intern in the U.S. Department of Commerce, uh, working in international telecommunications policy. I then became a paid staff member at the Commerce Department and started traveling around the world doing lots of international stuff and my relationship and exposure to ITU issues began then. Uh, I then made a jump to the ITU in 1993, way back when, um, and focused on development issues. So working in the Development Bureau as a staff member leading regulatory reform efforts and then I moved on to be the chief of strategic planning and membership. I became the first D2 in the history of the ITU, which was uh, an exciting breakthrough. Uh, And in that position, I 
led our, our governance functions. I also created our UN office in New York, and um, it was a great 10-year uh, experience before I went back to my development roots and took up my current function three years ago. And so here we are, uh, and today we're talking about a couple of important points that I hope our audience will learn from you, both as a woman, as a woman leader, but also as a specialist in, in telecommunication and technology in general. So let's take um, sort of a wide look at the tech landscape today. It seems to me that, you know, we no longer use technology as such. We'd rather live in technology, it surrounds us, it helps us or even determines whatever we do as, as humans. And as such, it's got the power to influence the, the way we interact with other species, with the planet, with, among ourselves. So technology is really an immersive environment in which we humans now operate basically uh, 20 hours a day or, or, or even more for those who monitor their sleep patterns using applications, as we know. Now, it seems to me as well that for such a immersive environment and such a high-impact uh, system, ecosystem, we have left tech free to develop and do whatever it wants or whatever the market dictates. And, and that seems um, a little bit odd when you look at some of the imbalances that this freedom uh, to develop uh, may or may not have generated. And this is where I wanted to ask you. Uh, the first imbalance that I have come across reading uh, about technology today is the, the relative position of women in technology. And one of the things I would like to begin with with you is, is that true that in the, across the technology industry there is a relative lack of women in role model positions and mentorship positions so that women coming to the industry basically lack this mentorship and role modeling by women and what that means overall in general terms? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me first say in terms of technology that, yes, there's a problem with women in the tech sector, but there's also a problem in terms of women's use and access to technology. So there's this big digital gender gap, so fewer women having access to a smartphone, having access to the internet. Uh, women and girls are less likely to actually have the digital skills that they need so that if they do have access to connectivity, they can't actually use it in empowering ways because they don't have those digital skills. So those are other big challenges that we have to tackle. And then, of course, it comes to representation in our sector, which is a huge problem. Um, as you mentioned, I was the first woman uh, elected. We have five elected positions, so we date back to 1865, and it took until 2018 to get one of the five uh, positions to be held by a woman, so I was honored and I'm excited to be in that role, but we have lots of progress to make. And when we look outside the ITU, um, when I think of women as women ministers in our sector, out of 193 member states, there's about 13. Uh, women heads of regulators, about 13, 14. So 
sometimes we get women in the sector, but then they're leaving or they're not getting to those leadership roles. It's a big problem. And of course, in the private sector, it's a problem as well. When we look at the workforce, I think women represent about 20% of the tech workforce. And so why is that coming back to your question about role models? Part of the problem is that we're not getting enough girls into STEM studies, so that's an issue. The other problem is if we do get them into STEM studies, when they graduate, there's a small percentage that actually enter the tech sector. And then when they get into the tech sector, they often leave. So we have this leaky pipeline, which is not helping us as an industry as a whole. And if you don't have women in the sector and you don't have that inclusiveness and that diversity that you need, what happens? You have products that are being designed and developed by one audience, by men. Um, You don't have women's perspective when it comes to leadership, management, internal policies of organizations. It's a big factor, and in some ways, it's a vicious circle. And so we do need to push for more role models. We need to highlight those role models. models. There's lots of great women and men, I would add. I've had lots of great role models and mentors that were men. But I think we need to do a better job in highlighting the opportunities that careers in the tech sector present for women and girls and, and to showcase those role models. Staying for, for a while on the role models, you said you had excellent male role models. That is, that is fine. That is, I, I think it's, it's a good thing. But what is the difference, in your opinion, between a male and a female role model when it applies to the technology industry. What will make a, a woman role model different if I'm a young woman, or, or a young man for that matter, uh, investing in, in learning and wanting to work for the tech industry? So as a young woman, you would think not just about your career um, and your, let's say, your remuneration, Uh, salaries are typically higher in the tech sector. But you would also, I think, want to understand the possibilities for your personal life. And I think that's where women role models can be particularly helpful. I mean, I'm a, a, I'm a spouse, I'm a mom, I have four children, and I've often spoken to young girls who ask the question, if I work in the tech sector, can I get married? Can I have children? So being able to give tips, to explain how you can do that, how you can strike the balance, I think is, is, is important for, for young girls and, and women to understand. Is that connected to the other imbalance I came across when reading the literature about tech, which is basically... The, the distinction between getting there, getting a job, landing a good job, even getting promoted as a woman in the tech sector versus staying in there, which is actually, you, you mentioned, many women actually leave. So is that linked to what you were saying before about this sort of um, apparent um, more, more greater difficulty in having a personal life when you work in the tech sector? So I think... It might be a little bit different in international organizations versus private sector. Uh, many studies 
uh, talk about women. Half of the women that get into this tech sector leave by the age of 35. Um, and the studies demonstrate that that's because of the feeling that they're not in a sort of nurturing environment, that the sort of work conditions and practices are not helpful, especially to women that are trying to parent or, you know, have other priorities in their personal lives. So, you know, and of course the tech sector has had this bad rap of being quite toxic. Um, And so those are issues that we have to deal with. Uh, And of course, if we don't have women in the boardroom, we don't have women helping to shape the, the, the work environment and ambiance, it's, it's an issue. Moving on to the aspect of the design that you mentioned before, that also attracted my attention as one of the imbalances, actually the third imbalance I found in the literature, the fact that most products and services are designed by men, either for men subconsciously or for women. I don't know which one of the two is worse. But is it true that a preponderance of men designers means that products and entire services are mostly male-oriented? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so I'm going to start with the, the Melinda Gates quote, which I always think is a good one, where she says that the percentage of women in AI is so small that it's unbelievable. And it's true. Um, and so when we think about product design or we think about artificial intelligence, we think about machine learning and the algorithms It's a little bit scary that some estimates say we have about 20% of the workforce is women in the AI space. I think it's a bit less, um, but that's scary when we think about algorithms that will have huge impacts on our life being designed by an unbalanced group, right? being largely male-dominated. And so I think... Diversity is critical. Inclusion is critical. Uh, we advocate for inclusive design. Uh, and when we say that, of course, we take account, take account of persons with disabilities. You don't want someone, they need to be at the table to explain what their needs are, just as women need to be at the table and explain what their needs are. Um, it's very difficult to design something without having an understanding of, of the needs of different stakeholders. So that inclusive piece is critical. Would you say that in, 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 in various parts of the tech industry there is an intentional attention for this, that things are being done, or, or this is kind of, sort of a, one of the issues that people love to talk about, but not much is done? I don't think it's intentional. It's just the reality that we're designing based on the workforce that we have. And so if we don't find ways to attract women into this sector and we can't retain them in this sector, then it's not going to change. What is the best practice you've come across to change just that in the private or in the public sector? I think a best practice would be mentoring and networking opportunities. I think that's so, so important. Um, Of course, some of the efforts in Geneva, the gender champions uh, piece, the women at the table work, those are also great ways. We need opportunities to encourage, support, and nurture women professionals, especially in the tech sector. 
And so if women can feel that they can access other women, um, share their experiences, their stories, get support, encouragement, I think that will go, go a long way. And I guess from the standpoint of the ITU, some of the, the, the efforts that we have been championing, we have our equals global partnership that brings you know 100 partners from around the world together. We look at different aspects, including women in tech. We have a big mentoring piece. We started this women in cybersecurity effort, which is another space where, like artificial intelligence, you don't have a huge pool of women. You do have some great women. And so to be able to bring in younger women, match them with more experienced women, I think that's been tremendous. So we're running that program as well. And we just launched a network of women to prepare for our next development conference, and that's also super exciting. So we have more experienced female delegates that are supporting, nurturing, mentoring younger delegates. Okay, and these are all very constructive and positive initiatives. And I remember just 25 years ago when I was already in the UN, it was much more obscure, much more you know, difficult to, to comprehend as, as a sector. So this, it's, it's encouraging to hear about that. I hope that our listeners will get you know, motivated if they're young women to, to come closer to, to the tech uh, industry. It's all about people. What you're saying is basically... We need to mentor people. We need to change the culture of entire, you know, the entire sector. So it's all about people. In that sense, it can be done um, with some, you know, cultural shift and some time. Now, this is a good segue to the next part of our conversation. I wanted to have with you about being a woman leader in your in your sector. You're certainly a leader. You've been for for. For a while, you have mentioned you were the first female D2. For our audience who don't know, our, our jargon D2 is a senior director. And as a matter of fact, there haven't been for, for decades many women in those positions. Now it's getting better and better, but it took a long, long time to do, to do so. So, Doreen, we, we regularly invite to our podcast women in leadership positions. And, and we do that because we want her, their experience and wisdom to be shared with others through, through the podcast. But also, we're quite intentional about understanding the specific challenges and strong points of women in leadership position, because we hope to inspire other women, and we hope to have men understand how diversity is so crucial and important in every, every industry, every sector of international relations. So this is the moment that I would like to invite you to share with our audience what these strengths, potentialities, limitations are seen from your standpoint of a woman that has spent three decades or more in a career that has been very successful. So you're one of the best examples I know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so maybe I'll start with um, the strengths, some of the, the sort of strong points that I think I bring to the table, as do other other women leaders. I think women tend to be, and I myself, more collaborative, so I'm more of a collaborative leader, which can make some feel uncomfortable, but eventually uh, I think it, it works. So a collaborative leader, um, and of course linked to that, it's, it's sort of a team builder, bridge builder, um, 
emotional intelligence i think is 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 something empathy is a is a is a strong point i would say um listening uh, i think that's a a critical skill that that women often bring to the table so that's a, that's a big one uh, the ability to manage crises i think is a is a strength that that women leaders in particular throughout this pandemic we've seen a number of 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 women heads of state in the way they've managed their respective um, domestic crises i think that that's another another big one so you know lots of different perspectives i think strong points that that we bring to the table on the on the challenge side there's there's lots of challenges and what i often tell my my staff and women in particular that you know if if you find this this sort of block in the road it's okay uh, there will always be those blocks and those barriers but you have to find a way to sort of pause take a deep breath and sometimes you have to recalculate and and find another way to get to your overall goal so sometimes i think there's more challenges for us than there is for men but it's still possible it just takes perhaps more patience and and some recalculation but i think it's it's achievable i think um a challenge also for women often confidence is is sometimes lacking um and that can be from the difficulty in sometimes having your voice heard at the board table so if i'm the only woman with 14 men at the board table we have different management groups in the ITU um and as i was the only d2 when i left to take my position as elected director there was a gap where there wasn't that d2 anymore we fortunately have another female d2 now uh but the board discussions which were at that level and the elected level i was the only woman <laughs> um so sometimes having your voice heard can be difficult um and what i like to to tell my my team as well um and navi pile once gave this example about the ladder and women when you get to the top of the ladder don't take the ladder away leave it in place so that others can climb up the ladder and i remember someone in the audience saying well if they take it away make sure you always carry your own ladder and so what i say to my my staff is you know sometimes you need to bring your own chair to the boardroom because there might not be a chair for you um so that that need to be assertive and firm and to be heard and sometimes it can be difficult you really have to find it inside it it takes us often outside of our comfort zone but we need to have our voices heard and of course if you're not the only one at the table it, it's easier but if you are the only one it takes an effort extra effort i think to be heard Yeah that's fantastic um sharing there thank thank you so much um i like the ladder example for those who don't know we have the few who don't know who Navi Pillai is she was a uh, high commissioner for 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 human rights and um an excellent professional international organizations and one of the most powerful example of women leadership i remember from maybe 15 years ago um when when women in those kind of positions were very very rare in the UN system now let's shift a little bit the discussion if you don't mind to to gender we spoke a lot about women point of view and women leadership but there is an underlying gender issue well gender issues everywhere mm-hmm. but i feel that in tech it comes out quite um, quite visibly uh, 
blatantly even. And so just to give you an example, gender imbalances within the tech sector, but also gender imbalances, this is what I want to talk, is gender imbalances preserved and even propagated by technology. One of the most astounding things happened to me um, maybe a couple of months ago. I was listening um, to a podcast, and there there were commentators from the tech sector, and one of them was, was talking about an academic research done on on, on Google searches by young parents. So these are young parents in their early 30s. And uh, basically by aggregating the questions, they found out that there was enormous gender bias in the way these parents interrogated uh, knowledge sources on the web. So if they asked, if they searched things related to their boy children, they would ask things like, you know, is, 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 is my son a genius? Is my son more intelligent than the average, etc.? When it came to girls, it was, it was about appearance, mostly about weight, like, is my daughter overweight? Uh, you know, question mark. And so the, um, the study concluded that not only there is gender bias, but because the, the web searches get recaptured, and then, of course, that alters your, your subsequent searches and the way that is served out to other, to other customers, they were saying there is a chance that we are propagating and preserving and propagating gender biases through the tech, let's say, you know, uh, ecosystem. I'd like to know your views about this, because for me it was like, wow, so the problem is much, much bigger. How are we going to solve this problem of gender inequalities if even technology becomes implicitly um, uh, gender imbalanced? That's a great question. And indeed, it, it's sort of a vicious circle, and it ends up sort of perpetuating it, it itself. What we have to do is tackle it in a multi-pronged way. So the industry has a role to play. Parents have a role to play. Educators have a huge role to play. Um, and governments have a role to play as well in terms of their, let's say, digital policies. Some countries have specific provisions in their, in their policies about having you know, women in the tech sector or in government organizations or women's access to technology. So policymakers have a big role to play. I think the media has a huge role to play and can be very helpful in, in better casting um, female role models. Uh, Gina Davis, who was our special envoy uh, for, for women's issues, she would say, if you can see it, you can be it. So, you know, if you have this Hollywood star who's, you know, running a tech company, it would likely inspire parents to encourage their girls and girls to be excited about that. So I think we need to tap into all of those different groups because it is a huge perception issue, it's a bias issue, and it needs to be tackled at a young age. We need to start with young girls and excite them about the tech sector. Um, I, I think taking the angle of not that we want you to be an engineer and it's about wires and hardware and even software, but taking the angle that tech is perhaps the most transformative uh, sector that we have in front of us and, and the impact of tech on people's lives. Because that's the other thing, and there's lots of studies on this as well, 
is that women or girls rather tend to want to go into fields where they feel they can help people. Um, and we have to explain and do a better job in storytelling about how technology can help people, right? We've seen that so clearly in COVID. Uh, 1.6 billion kids who had their education disrupted and, you know, 800 million kids that didn't have access to digital learning. You know, so there's a face there. There's a child there whose life has been disrupted. So I think we have to do a better job in talking about people and people-centered technology and the impact that technology has, I would argue, on each and every SDG. So if it's agriculture, healthcare, whatever, technology has a huge role, and that's why we need women and girls excited about tech. That's very powerful. I, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, the link between technology and helping people as a mission in life, as an aspiration uh, by human human beings, I think that it's so evident now. It appears to me so evident. You're right. Um, I, I wish all of us in international organization could, 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 could make a better job of, of publicizing that angle and, and depicting technology as an ecosystem that is there also to help people live better lives. That brings me to another point, which is uh, currently discussed, you know, left, right, and center, is the, the issue, problem, or aspect, as you may want to define it, of ethics in technology. Or, for some, the, the desperate lack of ethics in technology. For others, you know, the way we, we you know, we... We design things, etc. You know better than any any anyone. So, it is increasingly discussed across the industry. That is clear. What I have um, noticed in my small experience, small exposure to the discussion of ethics in AI, ethics in technology, is that it's very often women who put that on the table. And um, the impression I got is that those women are considered as as you know, like. I wouldn't say troublemakers, but maybe they're slowing down the development process. And so why are we talking about this when clearly the objective is to develop a new family of algorithms or, or tech, um, tech services? So what is your take on ethics? Where is the tech industry heading on the issue of ethics? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a, that's a great question, and it's something that we have to keep in focus. And as you mentioned, you know, sort of this ethics by design, you know, building it in from the beginning is, is, is really an important, an important notion. Um, I think the discussion on ethical dimensions is certainly gaining traction in the United Nations. We saw that come out very clearly in the Secretary General's Digital Cooperation Panel, uh, the roadmap. Um, UNESCO and others are, are picking up on this and, of course, our AI for good. Because when we talk about technology and ethics, I think the, the biggest concerns come when we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, the algorithms, uh, you know, sort of where do we draw the lines. Um, and so in our AI for Good Summit, we've had lots of exciting sessions. It's been online all year, even last year since, uh, since COVID hit us. And we need to be learning from each other, sharing experiences, and trying to, let's say, ensure, as the UN Secretary General said himself, that tech is a force for good. Uh, and 
there are concerns, so we need to pay attention so that the bad and the ugly uh, of connectivity and technology doesn't overtake us. What is that you think is going to prevail? A sort of, uh, let's say, in 2030, just to match the, 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 the development agenda and the SDGs, what would be the, the view from there? A technology that has developed along the lines of economic growth and consumptions, markets, etc., with, with an, an ethic in the back burner, or a technology that is clearly steered itself towards this approach of tech for good with components, large components of uh, ethics by design. Which of the two scenarios are is more, more probable? Well, I hope by the time we get to 2030 that we've bridged the digital divide and those 3.7 billion people that are not connected are actually connected. But I do think that between now and then, and as I said before, the ethical issues are gaining traction and the importance of building these principles in from the design phase is clearly understood. So I think that if we can continue to push it so that it is a tech-for-good conversation that we're looking at, that would be the right direction. And I think this is really where ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, is really focused. So I would like to, to now come to your, your role as, as, a, as, a, as a senior leader in the ITU and talk a little bit uh, about ITU, who is known to everyone. You said, you said it yourself, he's been there for the 18, since the 1800s, but most people don't have a, a full understanding of what ITU stands for in terms of values and vision. So let's, let's start with that. What is the vision of ITU in terms of uh, you know, this wide, wide world that we call telecommunication and technology? So the ITU, as you, you mentioned, goes back to the 1800s, 1865, where we were created because of the telegraph. So it was about ensuring that telegraphic messages could pass, and of course at this time it was Europe, could pass from one European nation to another. And then you fast forward, television, telephone, internet, and here we are today, and our mission is about connectivity, about ensuring that the whole world has access to connectivity. We do that through development, which is the, the, the arm of the ITU that I lead, through um, standards development, so to ensure interoperability of services and equipment. And, of course, another key space is in radio communications spectrum, which is absolutely critical in orbital satellite assignments, which is another important piece of our radio communications bureau. So with those three pillars, uh, we, we offer a sort of whole package to help countries achieve connectivity. So our big focus, of course, is on safe connectivity, affordable connectivity, meaningful connectivity, and I would say inclusive connectivity. So that's a great vision, especially um, when you think that um, the, 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 the organization has been created so long before what we consider today connectivity, but actually Telegraph was about connecting connecting people and, yes. and places. So that's, yeah, that's quite uh, consistent over, over, what, 150 years? And it took you that long 
to elect a woman director <laughs> of a bureau. Um, that's amazing too. But let's take a mini dive into your into your bureau. You talked about the three pillars, so let's take let's take a mini mini dive into the contribution of your bureau to this wider vision. So my bureau, the development uh, arm is where we have impact at the country level. This is the people part. This is the, the very motivating part, I would say. And we have 13 offices around the world, and we focus on supporting governments to create the enabling policy and regulatory frameworks that attract investment, that attract uh, private players. We focus on infrastructure, so the infrastructure rollout pieces, We've got a lot of exciting tools that we offer for those last-mile connectivity challenges. We do capacity development, so helping countries as well as people to develop those digital capacity skills that they need. We have a big focus, uh, as I mentioned before, on cybersecurity and a specific focus on gender, the, the, the digital divide, as well as youth. That's been a big focus for me over the past two and a half years to we rolled out a youth um, strategy to ensure that we are not just for youth, but we are also by youth so that we engage youth as creators of the work that we're doing as well as as beneficiaries. I think that's a, that's a big constituency that we cannot, especially when we talk about digital issues, they're the digital natives, not me, um, and so that's a, that's a big focus for our work in, in the Development Bureau. We've got some really exciting projects. We work with UNICEF. We have this school connectivity effort called GIGA, where uh, we have this ambitious program to connect every school on the planet to the Internet and every young person to information, opportunity, and choice. We have our Smart Village effort that was born here in the Palais in Niger, which is also super cool, bringing connectivity to villages, but then bringing all of those empowering applications to, to the people in, in those villages. Um, so those are just two, um, I think, good examples of the great work that we do on the ground. And of the focus on people, which I think it's, um, uh, it's really where, where technology can show a big difference, like we were saying before, in terms of helping people live uh, better lives. There is one point... Before we wrap up, I wanted to 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 bring to to your attention, which is sort of um, when you look at uh, international organizations um, and international relations in general, you what you see is that the average age is um, is rather high, and I think personally this detracts quite a bit from systems agility, and 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 I think international organizations need to develop that agility if they want to stay relevant in, 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 the, in the era and places we're, we're going uh, in the world today. So my question to you is, perhaps in the tech sector, the, the, mean, the median age is lower, except some notable exceptions. But in the international organization, and I suppose in ITU as well, there is this kind of, you know, older people um, uh, having more power. And so my question to you is, what space do you think exists or is available in ITU for younger leaders to emerge and make this technology sector more inclusive and also more agile? I think you're completely right. And this is a space where 
we have to do better. And I think we can do better. Um, we look at the tech sector, in particular Silicon Valley, lots of young CEOs. Um, when we look at our own organization and the governments that we engage with, it is traditionally older. There are some exceptions where we're seeing some brilliant ICT ministers and regulators that are young. When I say young, I mean like late 20s, early 30s. But overall, it's very old. And I don't think that our practices, our contracts, our structures in the UN system are as engaging as they should be for younger audiences. I think the system as a whole needs to do better. Uh, and I think we can. I think we have to, especially when it comes to digital issues. Some of the things that we have tried outside of you know, the formal um, staffing and hiring process is to bring young ICT policy leaders to some of our governing body events encourage delegations to bring young people on their delegation to have special sessions with them, intergenerational discussions, to encourage countries to put their younger people on the microphone. I think that's, that's helpful. Uh, we've created this Generation Connect initiative, so we've created a board of, of brilliant young people. We're looking to them to guide us, um, not just, as I said before, as youth being beneficiaries, but as being creators because uh, I think that that's so important. We've set up six regional working groups as well with young people all around the world. So this is the moment. And when we look at regions that are least connected, like Africa, they have huge, right? They have the biggest youth demographic in the world. We need to seize and leverage that talent, help build the digital skills, help build the future CEOs in that region, and the potential is, is tremendous, but I think we as an organization, as the UN system, have to start at home uh, in our own turfs and really enable younger people to have more opportunities uh, within our organizations. That's very well said, and thank you for sharing those good examples, like giving access uh, to youth, the boards, etc. I think yeah, I think there are good examples. I hope that other other colleagues in international organizations listening to this may be inspired and may emulate that. Doreen, as we wrap up this episode of our podcast, I wanted to ask you, do you have a final thought or final thoughts that you want our audience to remember from this episode? I think technology can be the greatest equalizer that we have ever known. But today it's not because we have this huge gap in terms of connectivity, and we have a huge gap in terms of diversity in our sector. I also think that it's technology and connectivity that give us the only possible hope to achieve the 2030 agenda and to achieve each of those 17 goals that I mentioned before. But to get there, we need everybody. So we need diversity. We need all stakeholders to come together so that we can build a digital future for all that gets us to achieving the 2030 agenda. Thank you. Just as uh, before we conclude, where can the audience find more about your work, your bureau, and ITU, any advice on web resources, other knowledge sources? 
www.itu.int would be the first place I would go, equals.org to learn more about our equals partnership is a great one, um, and you'll find everything on those two sources. So Doreen Bogdan-Martin, Director of the ITU Telecommunication Development Bureau, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. So that was that conversation between Doreen Bogdan-Martin and our director, Francesco Pisano. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested to find out more about what Doreen has mentioned in this episode, you can find all the resources in the show notes. If you like this episode or have any feedback, please do not hesitate to comment, like, or subscribe to our podcast. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, you can find us at UNOG Library. Or on Facebook, you can search for United Nations Library and Archives Geneva. If you want to get in touch with us directly, you can tweet us directly at nextpagepod hashtag. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Until next time. Bye.